all feelings are for feeling, not just the easy ones, the hard ones too. All feelings are for feeling. And the only thing worse than feeling it all is missing it all. I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. get anxiety as I think about introducing this next person because I don't think my words can actually articulate how incredible I think she is. Our conversation, Glennon Doyle and I, was a career highlight. And I'm going to try and do this intro quickly because I just want to get out of the way. So Glennon is an author. She's an author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Untamed, which is out right now. It's been on the bestseller list for weeks and weeks. And she's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Love Warrior, which was an Oprah's book club selection. Glennon just is is quite the master. She's quite the artist. If you haven't read Untamed yet, it is my favorite book of the year, if not the last couple of years, I would venture to say. And the way she tells stories and her ability to articulate and entertain and connect without sounding prescriptive or preachy in any way is, it's magic, really. I mean, I just want to keep reading. So please pick up that book if, if you're looking for a good read. And we do. We talk about the book in this episode. Glennon is also the founder and president of Together Rising, which has raised over $25 million for women, families, and children in crisis. I, I can't say enough about not only Glennon and her work, but this conversation, um, it just it connected and clicked, and I hope you feel that too. I took copious notes, <laughs> and I've been studying Glennon now. Before, in preparing for this conversation, I kind of went down the, the Glennon rabbit hole and just read and watched everything I could. She just, she is the definition of authenticity, really. So um, I hope that you enjoy this chat I know I sure did. And let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback. Heads up also about the second Renegade session, which will be April 27th at 10 a.m. Pacific. I'm going to be teaching on the topic of humanizing your brand and how you show up online, your presence online. I'm going to be sharing ways you can really innovate your approach to social communication, social media, And avoid that sea of sameness, that kind of noise that we feel like we're being surrounded by and 
really just kind of change it, change the game. Approach your presence online from a place of who and why, not just the what. So join me if you can. It's called Renegade Sessions. You can head to renegadesessions.com. It's free. Sign up. Uh, we're, we're having a good time. We actually have a live DJ that is also a part of the experience. It's called edutainment. It's entertainment and education rolled up into one because why not right now? We could use a little bit of that. And um, it's sanitized from any sales or solicitations offers. This is all about service. Renegadesessions.com. Join me April 27th at 10 a.m. Pacific. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives. For me, being able to design my own day is a non-negotiable. As many of you know, I'm a bit of a time management nerd. So when I find something that allows me to be more efficient and more effective, I want to share it with everyone. So here's the scoop. I have a new tool in my productivity tool belt, and I'm a bit obsessed. It's monday.com. My team and I have never felt more organized, and I have a new sense of perceived control. My to-do list is no longer the boss of me. I feel more in control because every project, initiative, date, and task is captured and organized in one place, and my team is in the loop and involved every step of the way. With Monday.com, it's like I have a brand new operating system. There's no long list, and everything has its own home, its own deadline, its own team member that's assigned and associated, and it's color-coordinated. We all have multifaceted jobs and businesses. There are many components to my business, and each and every one of them has its own compartment. Each division is always one click away. For example, my team and I have a dedicated board for this very podcast. Did you know there are 28 steps involved in getting one podcast to air? It's the same exact process every time. And it's a system. We have the various key steps mapped out as micro tasks. And this allows for my team and I to stay in lockstep every step of the way. With Monday.com, I can zoom out and see the big picture, a roadmap view from 30,000 feet. And a moment later, I can zoom in and focus on a specific microtask within a project, within a division of the company. I could go on and on about the features that Monday.com offers, one of which is I've built my social media content calendar inside of Monday.com. I finally have one that I actually use, that I like, and it's embedded into my overall Google Calendar. Another feature that I love is the Google Doc integration. You know I love a good spreadsheet. I can pull them into monday.com and edit them right there versus having 97 tabs open on my computer. If how we spend our days is how we spend our lives, then I can't think of anything more important than using the time in our days wisely. Head to monday.com if you want a free trial. And let me know on social media how it goes for you. Shoot me a DM. We can swap tips and tricks. Glennon, 
Kristen, welcome to the Why Not Now show. If you could see the smile on my face right now, I am so excited to have you on. Let's hop in in the spirit of Why Not Now. Can you tell me about a time when you had a big decision to make and you had to ask yourself, why not now? Yeah, I've been thinking about how I wanted to answer your question. And it's kind of a heavy one, but it's the one that that began my entire life, so I'm going to have to go with it. Um, I just kept thinking about the moment, let's see, 18 years ago, when I um, found myself on a sitting on a very cold bathroom floor, um, shaking from a vicious hangover and terror, and um, holding a positive pregnancy test. And I, um, at that moment, had been lost to addiction for... It's about 15 years. I became bulimic when I was 10, and that just evolved into all the different isms. And so in that moment um, on the bathroom floor, I was real, just so broken and so sick. I had burned every bridge in my life, as many addicts do. And still, I mean, there could have been no worse candidate for motherhood on earth, okay? And still, something inside of me just was like, yes, this very well could be my last chance to come back to life. And I am going to do it. I'm going to get sober. You know, I was 25 years old at that point, but that was the beginning of my life. Wow. Amazing. And in reading that portion of your book too, in Untamed, I remember rereading it because I was like, okay, just kind of trying to feel in and being like, wow, this was the turning point. And you talked about you were trying to become a grown-up and growing at the same time or something like that. (laughs) I underlined it and like highlighted it. And I was like, holy shit, this is big. And you did it. But was it an instant planning? Was it like, that's it? This is all changing now? And then the decision was made? Or how did it transform into taking Mm -hmm. place? Yeah, so I think sobriety is always a one-time decision and then an every-minute decision for the rest of your life. That's why it's so freaking exhausting. Mm -hmm. But but that day, I'll tell you about that moment, I called my sister and she came to my home and she literally picked me up off the bathroom floor and walked me to her car and took me to my first recovery meeting. Yeah, and I just remember sitting in that circle and listening to those people tell their stories and thinking, these are the first honest people I've ever met in my life. Mm. It was like that moment of not knowing where to go or what to do and just trusting my sister to take me to the next right place is where I kind of found my people, you know, and those people are the people who ushered me through into the next, Mm. you know, it's scary time where you've made a decision, but it's never like from the decision to the next thing, right? It's like always this abyss of time where you don't know what the next thing looks like. You just know you're done with the last thing. And so in the middle of that really wild transition time where Abby describes it as like when you're on the monkey bars, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you have to let go of one for a minute to get to the next one. It's like that letting go time that is so scary and also so transformative because it's like you have to change in between to become prepared for the next thing. Yes. 
It's like that quote, have you heard, when one door closes, another one opens, but there's hell in the hallway? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that hell in the hallway. It's, hell in the hallway. Yeah. Hell. It was hell. I, I, you know, it's so funny because not enough people talk about this part of getting sober, which is like, I was an addict for so long and I just hurt so many people and hurt myself and, and, you know, my family and they were just in so much pain and they were so afraid and everyone wanted me to get sober so bad. And it's like, you feel like, okay, I'm doing it now. So now my life's going to be good because I did the hard thing. I'm getting sober, but actually early sobriety is hell. It's hell in the hallway. It's like all I remembered every minute of the day when I was getting sober was like, oh yeah, this is why I started drinking in the first place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. This oh my gosh. Yes. I started binging. This is why, because being human with no, um, you know, none of those distractions we mm-hmm. use mm-hmm. to, to numb it out is so hard. Um, yeah. And I just feeling all my feelings for the first time. And that's brutal when you haven't practiced it ever. Oh, Mack truck, oh, like hit yes. me in the face. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I've been thinking, who could I bring on the podcast to talk about sobriety? Because I can imagine how many people right now in quarantine are just Mm. struggling. I know even my own friends have said, yeah, I've been drinking more wine than usual. And Mm. I grew up in an AA household. My parents have been in recovery, I think, for like 40 years now or something. And so it was kind of alongside Catholicism our religion of, I learned a lot of the one day at a time, this too shall pass, you know, all of the, it it has such a structure and applies to everyone, right? I feel like everyone should go to AA, but it's, I've struggled with alcohol in my life. And I think about how you talk about doing that hard thing Mm -hmm. and kind of where people are right now, if they're listening and they're struggling, maybe you're hungover and this is hard shit we're in right now uh, yeah. in a pandemic. And uh, I heard you say this morning that you want to turn the whole world into one big AA meeting. <laughs> during yeah, I think your we kind of are meetings. right now. Yeah, we we're kind of, we've kind of been sent to our room a bit. What would you say to the person that might be listening right now who knows that Maybe they're not quite even sure if if they have a problem or not, whatever that means, but they want to make a change. Yeah. Well, first of all, a funny thing is like most people who don't have alcohol problems don't think all day about whether or not they have an alcohol problem. (laughs) So So there's a sign. (laughs) Right? So there's a sign right there. Like if you – but also um, I think that this idea of of feeling like we're in early recovery right now, I think it applies to everybody not just people who are worried they're drinking too much. I mean, I think that this time for us, you know, I run a nonprofit that serves women and children in need. So you can imagine our, the needs coming in are just tripled and quadrupled and people are in so much pain and people have lost so much. And, and all of that is very real and very scary. And then on top of that, all of that stuff that's going on out in the world, we are all suddenly stuck in our homes, if we're lucky to have Mm -hmm. them, like we are stuck. And to me, it feels a lot like, you know, it's like, you know, those snow globes 
that you know you shake and the and the snow kind of flies all over the place and then if you stop shaking it all settles and something there's like some solid unmoving thing in the center i think that's what's happening right now it's like we are the snow is settling i think that we as human beings um we try to keep our snow globe shaken up right we we keep ourselves very busy and distracted from that thing in the center of us which is the essence of the human experience, which is always true and has always been true, which is that we are extremely vulnerable and nobody is in control down here. And most of our systems are broken. And um, at the end of the day, we really just have each other, you know? I mean, that's always true. Mm -hmm. But now we don't have any of the things that we use to keep us distracted from that truth of being human, right? We are just stuck inside our homes, stuck with ourselves, stuck with our feelings, stuck with our people, stuck with the truth. Like it really feels to me like one giant settling of the snow globe. And that is what early recovery is. So, so I would just, I think that, that this time right now, it applies to everybody, whether or not you have a drinking problem, because we all have things that we, the reason why you're saying everyone should go to AA is because people who are addicts often get the gift of recovery, but the gift of recovery recovery isn't just quitting drinking. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a path. It's a way of life. It's it's a it's a commitment to dealing with life on its own terms without numbing or rushing or using any of the things that we use to keep our snow globe shaken up. Right. Oh, so hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. So everybody at this moment has like a little slice of the gift of recovery, which is the practice of facing all of these fears and truths about being human head on, right? I mean, and it's excruciating at first. What it feels like at first is just utter shit. Like every, the reason we feel like shit right now, the reason why we're exhausted, the reason why we're like a lot of us are walking around like zombies, the, the reason why I met so many are crying, all the, like it's it's because it's this hard, right? I remember going to my fifth meeting on my sixth day of sobriety, and I was in this early snow settling period, and I just remember standing up and I said, "My name is Glennon. I've been sober for six days, and I just feel awful. I feel awful, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and I just feel like there must be some kind of secret to life." that everyone else has that I don't have because I just think that life is life is harder for me than it is for everyone else. I just I just feel like I'm doing everything wrong. I'm doing life wrong. And this woman came up to me after the meeting and I can remember every like perfect wrinkle on her face. Like I I can remember everything about her. And she just looked at me and she said, Honey, I need to tell you something that somebody told me in early recovery. She said the reason why it feels so hard right now for you is not because you're doing life wrong. It's because you're finally doing it right. She said, doing life right, living life on its own terms is really hard. Feeling all of your feelings is really hard, which is why so few people do it. And if there's any secret, if there's any secret at at all, it's just that all feelings are for feeling, not just the easy ones, the hard ones too. All feelings are for feeling. And the only thing worse than feeling it all is missing it all. And I'm telling you, sister, that I did not know 
before that lady told me that, that all feelings were for feeling. Mm. I thought, I believed what our, our culture teaches us, that happiness is for feeling. And all those other emotions like fear and doubt and anger and envy and all of those emotions are a mistake, right? Those mm. feelings are for being ashamed of and they're for numbing and they're for fixing and they're for deflecting and they're for ignoring. And so this idea that actually every single one of those feelings, if we allow them, if we let them do enter us and we don't hot potato them, we just let them change us, that they do change us, right? That they have some sort of power inside of us that is uncomfortable, but is also transformative. And so that is the power of this time, I think, that we will all feel like crap for a a long while and there will be transformative power of this time. I've seen it too often to not trust uh, that process. Mm. I'm thinking about something that we kind of talked about before we hopped on here, and that was, in a way, I guess you could wrap it up to imposter syndrome. You've been so honest about your journey, and and you've talked about how it, it has freed you in almost every aspect. In fact, there was, there was a moment when I was reading your book where you, at, at the beginning of a chapter, it's your quote about being broken. Mm-hmm. And then you say, oh, you said, I was born a little broken with an extra dose of sensitivity. And then you say, some horse shit, I wrote my first memoir. <laughs> and it just was like, okay, this is my spirit animal here, right? Mm-hmm. I look at my first book and I'm like, what the heck was I saying? Like, <laughs> that's not true hard. anymore. Like, telling no. people. Anyway, so, but but my point is, is you've been so so open about your journey, what do you say to people who, you know, they are considering and flirting with the idea of sharing their story, but they say to themselves, who am I? Who am I to share? Why should I tell my story? I guess I'd say a few things. First of all, kind of like the alcohol thing, like people who are alcohol, who are not alcoholics usually don't sit around wondering if they're alcoholics. And I think that people who are um, not writers are usually not people who sit around feeling like they should write. Like if you are a person who harbors that feeling of like, I need to write, I should write, I was meant to write, you're probably a writer, right? So also one other clue for me is always, I always ask people, only people who I know will be honest, but I always ask people, so are you like wildly envious of writers? So to me, Envy is one of those awesome emotions that gets a bad rap. Like we all think we shouldn't feel envious, so we just pretend we aren't all the time, which makes it completely unhelpful. What I have learned, so so when I was drinking all the time, I could not, if somebody handed me a book and by a woman and said, this book is beautiful, you should read it, I would not read it. I would not even look at it. Like I, something about reading the words, beautiful words that a woman wrote felt to me like looking directly at the sun. It just, it was so painful. And I think that was because Mm -hmm. there was a deep part of me that knew that I could do that, that knew that a braver, bolder, healthier version of myself could do that. And I don't think that there's anything more painful than seeing somebody do what you would do if you were just a little braver, Mm. you know? Mm Mm-hmm. If you're feeling very envious of of writers, then that's another really, really good clue that it's time to start, right? Okay. You know, one interesting phenomenon lately is that 
I think in this era of vulnerability, you know, everybody believes that vulnerability is what will heal us. And that is true in some ways. But it has led to this phenomenon where people, I think, believe that, okay, telling my story is about utter and complete raw vulnerability in the moment. And I have found that not to be effective art all the time, because what I think is is the case is that memoir is different than a diary, right? So a diary is a place or a journal is a place where I just dump it all out every day. I just like throw it all, you know, in when I'm actually in pain or when I'm in confusion or when I'm in whatever, that's one thing. But, but what, what tends to need to happen for memoir is that you need to sit with that for a little while longer, right? You need mm-hmm. to, pain has to be sat with, pain has to be mined for gold because it's like when pain is happening right away, it feels very, very, very personal. Mm-hmm. And, and then as wisdom, as time brings wisdom, you get to see that, that it's universal, right? That pain is rarely personal, that it, it, there are threads in it that have um, universal wisdom and meaning and then after a time, what I can do is I can turn my pain into an offering, right, to the world after I have um, mined it for gold a little bit. Mm-hmm. But what happens when people share in, you know, extremely vulnerable stuff in real life, in real time, I'm sorry, before the right time is that it's not ex- embraced mm-hmm. by people in a way that feels good to the writer. And that is because it felt more like a cry for help mm-hmm. than an act of service. Right. Oh, makes so much sense. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I can feel that. Yeah. The, it, shift in so, energy. It's like a yeah. sharing a scar instead of a wound, an open it, wound type thing. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. Um, it's, you gotta wait till it scabs over a little bit for people to feel safe to look at you and see you as your art, as something that can serve them and connect with them instead of a, a job that they have to do for you, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, are you serving right. them or are they serving you? Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so I mean, that's an important thing. I think people read, you know, Love Warrior even. Love Warrior is a little more raw than Untamed, I think, in some ways. But, you know, what they don't, what I remind people is, like, yeah, I wrote all that stuff and it's truth telling, it's vulnerability, but I wrote it four years after it happened. Hmm. Big difference. Right? I had yep. plenty of time, plenty of time to turn it from diary to memoir. Mm, so good. So, so I do think that, you know, uh, if you think you're a writer, you probably are. And if you're going to do the kind of work that, that is memoir, that is kind of like um, truth-telling, vulnerability, that there is an art to it and, and a time to it. And um, to just wait until what you f- are putting into the world really does feel like an offering and not an ask. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Are you ready for change? Or maybe you're already in a season of expansion. As we embrace this new decade, are you ready to take action on your own why not now idea? Maybe that means starting the company, launching the podcast, writing the book, or doing more public speaking, injecting your why into what you are doing. At the end of the day, that is exactly what creates connection. And connections convert. My life work is to help guide women through this very stage in their life. 
I do this through the Renegade Brand Bootcamp. It truly is the career love of my life. The reason I love this program so much is because I'm able to create a mosaic, a collection of like-minded, like-hearted, driven women who come together to level up. They learn the renegade mentality directly from me, and I share everything I've learned over the past 20 years in business. It's equal parts education, collaboration, accountability, and community. We are accepting applications for our 2020 program, and you are welcome to go check everything out about the program at renegadebrandbootcamp.com. And as a very first step, just sign up for my five-day email series. I uncover all of the questions about the bootcamp and help you understand if it's right for you. We've had some incredible women come through the program and you will hear from them as well. You can check out the curriculum, the structure, the vibe, and everything in between. Many years ago, I went to Mark Cuban and asked him for investment advice. I thought I was going to get some real estate or stock market type of advice. Instead, he said, invest in yourself. Invest in your own growth. Invest in yourself. Bet on yourself. This is the best ROI you will ever find. If you're at that point where you are ready to take action, head to renegadebrandbootcamp.com. That's awesome. That's so clear. It's such a wonderful way to to articulate it. I remember I asked Martha Beck a question once about like, when do you know when you're ready type thing? If you still feel like you're in something, but and she said something about, um, you might always be in it, but if you still feel resentful of an experience, you probably aren't ready to write about it yet. You need to kind of get to the other side and it seems like the, your, your point about memoir versus diary, <laughs> that's, yes. that's such a great, perfect example. So let's talk a little bit about your writing style. And then I, I would love, I, I'm sure you've told the cheetah story a gazillion times, but, and maybe you could tell it from Tabitha's point of view. Um, <laughs> could you be Tabitha? I was like, how could we change this up? Because I know you've said it, but for people who haven't read the book yet, and I say yet, because if you're listening... This could not be a better book to be reading right now. Well, your writing style, did you intend when you, you set out to write Untamed, and it sounds like you, you gave it a shot a couple times and Liz Gilbert sure helped you <laughs> mm-hmm. um, tell you that, yeah, the first version sucked. Yeah, there you go. Sure. <laughs> Nothing like Elizabeth Gilbert telling you that, but I mean, that's pretty valuable. But but these are snackable, tangible, little yummy tidbit stories that you, I mean, as I would sit down and read at night getting ready for bed and it was like, oh, I can do three more. Like it just felt so accessible and so doable. Was it intentional out of the gate? Did it kind of just land that way? Tell us a little bit about your writing style and just how this took shape the second time around. Oh, that's a fun thing for me to talk about. Well, the length of each piece was, um, you know, I kind of have two ways I love to do things. And one is just like a beautiful story that I love to tell that kind of reveals truths inside of it. That is kind of a narrative from my life. So like Elmer's, the story about Tish and Abby and soccer and Craig would be one of those type of stories. But then I love to take really big concepts like what does faith mean? And like, what's the difference between God and church? And like figure out, so I could think about that for a year. 
right? In mm-hmm. all the different ways. And I couldn't write something that's like six pages long about that. And then my goal is, no, 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 we got to get it to five pages. No, four pages. No, four paragraphs. No, like I don't feel like I have come to the conclusion that's, that, that's satisfying enough for me until I can write it so simply. Mm. Yeah, it's harder than the long stuff, right? (laughs) Yeah, because I can't stand the long stuff, honestly. Like, if you can't tell me what you mean in a couple paragraphs, like, I don't want the yada, yada, on and on and on. Like, do that, but then you got to get to the simple after the complicated, Mm. right? Tell me what, go through the complicated. But for me, in my writing style, if I can't get to the simple after the complicated, then I'm not ready to share what I've discovered yet. Right. So I wanted to write pieces about big, complicated subjects in like a boiled down, like astronaut food way. <laughs> right. <laughs> astronaut food. Yes. Like okay. getting it down. And, and that is hard. It is very like it is one thing to write about complicated way things in in complicated ways. But it is freaking hard to get complicated things down to like an essence that feels like the essence of the thing. So that was the kind of goal there. And about the format, I mean, yeah, I wrote Untamed, half of Untamed once, and um, it just, I wasn't feeling it. I just wasn't feeling it. I was like circling around the essence of it. And and, and Liz came to visit. She's one of my dearest friends and she started listening and I, she asked me to read some of it. She started listening. And what we decided was together that day is that I was writing a book about destroying and living beyond old structures. Mm -hmm. But I was writing it in an old structure. (laughs) Okay. I was writing a book about what, about the wild inside of us, but I wasn't writing it wild. Wildly. Oh yes. You weren't living it. Well, I was living it. The book wasn't living it. But the book wasn't living it, right? Right, right. You couldn't feel it. You could, you could, you could read it in your brain, Mm -hmm. but like you weren't feeling it. And then you know when when Brene, my friend Brene, she Brene Brown, you know the Brene. Oh yeah, just Brene. It's like Oprah, but Brene. Right. (laughs) So when she we did our our, her, her podcast together, and she said it's like. When I read it, when I read it, I wasn't reading it with my brain. I was reading it all the way through my toes. Yeah. And that's what was missing from the first one, you know? So basically I took, you know, concepts from the first one, but I really just started over and just said, okay, I want this book to read wild. Like I want it to be no format that anyone's ever seen. I want it to be just read like a cheetah. I was going to say, yes, read it like a goddamn cheetah, right? Yeah. Like feel your heart pumping like it's like Tabitha running through you know running the race like I wanted it to feel a little bit breathless and 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 you know so so it is very cool for me to hear people talk about the format in that way like that it felt so different and and that feels so cool to me because it's like oh that is art to me it's like not Mm -hmm. just what you're saying but how you say it and how you arrange it and you know how it all comes together into one um, message where the medium is the message too. Yes, yes, it is. It hundred percent. It's art, and it's it's so subtle because the reader doesn't really know anything until they dive in, and you take them along without even realizing it. It's an untamed journey of mm. the reading. Yeah. Oh my gosh, and the covers just—it's just rad, just absolutely rad. Okay, 
Every, for anyone who is wondering who Tabitha is, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> could you share in whatever way you'd like just the opening? And it's, it's just so powerful. Yeah. So, you know, I have had basically the ideas of this book swirling inside of me since I was 10 years old. Um, mm. Just always felt like, I mean, I guess I could say I just felt like I was, I was chasing the wrong things. You know, like I was, I was trying to be what culture told me to be. You know, I was trying to be a good girl and I was trying to be a good um, mom and I was trying to be a good wife and I was trying to be a good woman and all. And, and I was trying so hard chasing these ideals and felt so exhausted and sort of unseen and un, I don't know, I just had this longing, you know, inside of me for something realer and truer. And, and, and so I, I had taken my girls to the safari park and we were at this thing called the cheetah run. Okay. Just waiting with all these families, just sweating as you do at these safari parks. And this woman zookeeper, she walks out and she's holding the leash of a lab, a freaking Labrador. And I'm like, you know what? If this woman tries to tell my children that this lab is a cheetah, I'm leaving. Right. (laughs) She says, she says, okay, you guys, do you think this is Tabitha the cheetah? And they all say, no. And she says, you're right. This is Tabitha's best friend, Minnie. Minnie the lab. Um, We raised Minnie alongside Tabitha to tame her. And now everything that Minnie does, Tabitha wants to do. So first we're going to watch Minnie run the race, and then Tabitha is going to run the race too. So Minnie uh, lines up at the starting line, and this little like weird Jeep thing lines up in front of her with a dirty pink bunny tied to the Jeep. Jeep takes off, the bunny takes off, the lab chases the bunny, and then it's Tabitha's turn. So Tabitha walks out of her cage, and oh my God, this animal, she's just like, I just get the shivers the second I see her. She's got these rippling muscles and silk-looking skin, and she's just like majestic and powerful. And then she lines up at the starting line, and the Jeep takes off, and of course, Tabitha, this wild, powerful, majestic animal has been trained to believe that her job is to chase this dirty pink bunny. So she chases the dirty pink bunny, crosses the finish line, and everybody cheers. I just stood there and just, it was one of those moments where it was what metaphor is, where you're seeing something that is real that you can see that perfectly crystallizes everything inside of you, like the invisible feelings that you can't see, right? Because I looked at Tabitha and I thought, oh my God, if a wild animal like a cheetah can be tamed enough to forget her wild, to forget who she is and spend all day, every day chasing dirty pink bunnies, so can a woman, right? Yes. And, and then and, and, and then this woman, this, this little girl, she raised her hand. She says, but isn't Tabitha sad? Doesn't Tabitha miss the wild? And the zookeeper said, oh, no, no, no. Tabitha was born in captivity. She doesn't even know the wild. She has a good, happy, safe life here. And I just looked at that animal and thought, there's no freaking way that there's not something inside of her that doesn't know that it was supposed to be more beautiful than this. Right? Yes. Like Mm -hmm. that part of all of us that part of all of us that is that longing, 
you know, that is that I guess it's just like the ache of our imagination, you know, the ache of our imagination that looks at our relationships and our work and our world and just thinks, I don't know, my hunch is that it was all supposed to be more beautiful than this. Right. Mm -hmm. That's our wild. Right. That's our wild. Like we were born into captivity. We are born inside of, of structures and institutions and nations that need us to get into line and forget our individuality um, in order to maintain status quo in every way. But there is a, a longing inside of us that calls us to consider reality to not just be what we can see outside of us, but what we can imagine inside of us. Right. I really believe that about imagination. I believe that imagination is not where we go to escape reality. It's where we go to discover the ultimate reality that only we were born with, that we were meant to unleash and give birth to on this earth right now to change it. So that's the story of Tabitha. And we're taught to be grateful mm-hmm. for that cage, for that, mm-hmm. you know, because it and that's that's what. Gosh, it's just the anal or the metaphor, as you said. Instantly, it was full body chills, right? And just, I know, like everyone else who who reads your book, it's there's body intelligence baked into it. <laughs> it's mm, like you were like, cue heart race, cue chills. Mm. Um, and but it's it is true. It's I think that struggle with oh, but I should be grateful. You That's should it. be grateful. That's it. And especially for women. I mean, that's what we're taught over and over again. That's why I included the story, my version of the story of Eve in the beginning, because, you know, the most (laughs) seminal freaking, you know, foundational story that many of us are taught is that, you know, everything was great. And well, it was just Adam and God, the two bros. But then Eve came and she couldn't just be grateful for what she had. She wanted more and she went for it. And that's how all suffering was unleashed on the earth. Like that's the story of women not going off the path, of women not following their curiosity, of women not asking for more, is baked into every cultural fairy tale, every story that we have. And that is because it is very important for cultures who are based in, in patriarchal ways to not allow women to feel like they can ask for more, mm. right? So that. The same message coming in sideways is just be grateful. Just be grateful for what you have. Just be grateful for what you have. That's another way of saying don't you dare ask for more. Yep. Right? Yep. And and also it's just this constant gaslighting. Like for women, you know, it is a a constant universal gaslighting of women in one way because it's like saying don't you dare ask for more is another way of saying what's wrong with you? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. You're crazy. Like, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, everything's fine. Look, one of the reasons I love that story of Tabitha is because had Tabitha had a voice and someone said, what's wrong, Tabitha? Why are you a little down today? She might say something like, I don't know, it's so weird. I just, you know, I just have this feeling, this hunch, this longing. I just feel like I want to sleep under, you know, a star-filled sky and I want to chase and kill and I want to, um, you know, run and run and run with no cage, And then she'd look at her cages and she'd be like, but this is all there is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Silly to want something that doesn't exist or something. Yes, yes. Silly to want something that doesn't exist, right? But she's not crazy. She's a goddamn cheetah, right? Yes, yes. She's living as a lab. 
That's why she feels crazy because she's living as a lab. That's how I feel about us as women in many, many ways. Like that we are not crazy. We are actually just freaking exhausted and unfulfilled because we're chasing dirty pink bunnies all day because we've been trained to live as labs instead of, you know, returning to and trusting ourselves, our wild. Mm-hmm. All these carrots in front of us, but oh. I don't even like carrots. Like I exactly. don't, I don't exactly. like them. <laughs> exactly. So when you start, when if if we think about the uncaging, the kind of breaking out, and how it can feel so uncomfortable and potentially messy, and we piss people off, or we, you know, we're afraid of what other people will will think and say. I'm looking at your book here, page one twelve, and. You're having a conversation with Liz again, and you're talking about the difference between uncomfortable truth mm-hmm. or comfortable lies. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that? Because I think this is – talk about a why not now moment where mm-hmm. you get to decide. It's like, am I am I going to swim in the sea of sameness of, of uncomfortable truth or, uncomfortable, or of comfortable lies or kind of venture out into that – uncomfortable truth so yeah what yeah I mean I that was a huge moment for you obviously in your life and in the book but talk to tell us more about that yeah I mean I think that well that that particular um time in the story and conversation was about when I was deciding whether or not to um you know I was madly and deeply in love with Abby and I was trying to decide whether to follow that to honor myself that I knew that, you know, or just pretend that I didn't know that and abandon myself again, which I know that we're all familiar with, right? Having that deep Mm -hmm. knowing and deep longing and still thinking, no, that will disrupt the universe too much, right? That Mm -hmm. will make my people uncomfortable. That will threaten my career. That will do all the things that that it will do, it will destroy this, it will destroy that. Um, And so instead we choose to destroy ourselves, right? By not honoring what's next. And so, and so I was trying to decide all of that. And, and, you know, I think that that quote was beautiful that Liz said that I was, I was talking about how will I tell Craig, how will I tell the kids? And she said, don't, don't forget that that every lie, even if it makes people comfortable is an unkindness and every truth, even if it makes people uncomfortable is a kindness. Mm -hmm. And I believe that to be true. I also just believe that in retrospect and, 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 and not in situations that have to be as dramatic as mine. I mean, falling in love with a woman and, you know, dismantling my family and, and coming out publicly and, you know, all of those things those were so dramatic. But this happens all the time in smaller ways to everybody. You know, we're in that conversation and we hear that, you know, racist dog whistle or we hear something that, that owes a response, right? That, that begs a response. Like we, our inner self, our untamed self is saying to us, say something, do something. Mm-hmm. But we're afraid because if we say or do the thing, there will be a price to pay, right? There's a cost to it, which is that it will cause discomfort. It will cause awkwardness. It will cause conflict. It will make other people uncomfortable, right? And mm-hmm. I think what we're, what we're finally realizing is that there is a price to pay either way. There is a price to pay if we don't honor the uncomfortable truth, right? And that price is that we slowly die inside. And the one-way liberation, that there's no such thing as a one-way liberation, that 
in a way, that is permission, I think, for a lot of people. Like, oh. So can, can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that or what was meant by that? Yeah, I would say I hope it's more than permission even. I hope it's like duty, right? I hope Good it's point. like mm-hmm. like not only do you not have permit, do you have permission to liberate yourself from whatever situation is um, caging you, you have the duty to do it. Because when you free yourself, you know, I think about how will I break my husband's heart? You know, when we were divorcing, how will I do this? I care so much about him. He's such a good man. I mean, we had our struggles for sure, but we had work to heal from them. And how will I do this to him? And it's funny, we talk now, we're dear friends. And, um, and now we think like, oh my God, what if I had not done that? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it freed him because we were living a lie, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. I didn't deserve to be slowly dying inside and he didn't deserve to be married to a woman who was slowly dying inside, right? Mm-hmm. We have to let the truth live outside of our bodies mm-hmm. because, you know, when I, the, the, the idea of one-way liberation is that when we, is that there is no such thing as one-way liberation is that when we allow ourselves to live fully as our truest selves, we grant permission to everyone around us to do the same. Amazing. And to, so to think about that, I think some people just think it's so selfish if I X, Y, Z, right? Well, it's your life. But to, you've talked before, and I don't know if this was morning meeting. And by the way, so Glennon is doing these morning meetings on Instagram that you have to tune into. I look forward each morning. And um, I don't know if this was in the book or if I heard you talk about it on morning meeting, but it was about control and love and how the two mm. can't coexist. Holy Girl. buckets. That one hit Listen. me hard. <laughs> this is um, – okay, so full disclosure, this is one of those issues in my life that I, is an opened wound and not a scab yet. So, <laughs> Ooh, so, we're getting exclusive so, here. <laughs> so with just, – just take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt, okay? I'm in it. I'm in the struggle to take control out of love. I just – have lived, and I didn't know this, okay, I didn't know this till recently, in a way that, that I thought I was loving my people, you know, I just, I thought I was, but I was actually just controlling them. I, I, I am a pretty fearful person, I live with chronic anxiety, and, and I also love my people fiercely, and I also feel like I have really good ideas <laughs> about, <Yeah. laughs> how, about how everyone that I love should live, like I just, because you're feel- a goddamn cheetah. Yes. Yes. And I truly believe, I mean, Abby and I laugh about this all the time. Like I really do believe that I have the best ideas. Okay. And I am just admitting that. And so I think that any relationship I'd been in in the past, you know, certainly they would have described me as the leader. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so so when I married Abby, it just stopped working is all I can tell you. It stopped working because it was like, we are so – close and she knows me so well and she's so good at at describing her feelings and so you know one day she just said Glennon you know I was doing the thing where I was like manipulating things by you know all the things that controlling people do that we think other people don't know we're doing right yeah and she just stopped me and she said I just need you to know that every time you do this it makes me feel like you don't trust me And that's really hard for me because I trust you so much and I really want you to just trust me. And I just for the first time realized, oh, 
she's calling me to this higher form of love that I've never had before that mm. requires me to trust her the same way I'm fighting to trust myself, right? Like mm -hmm. I thought that I could love people and control them. But what I realized is that that is impossible. You can only love people or control them, but you can't do both because love requires trust. And we only control things that we don't trust, right? So it is by its essence one or the other, love or fear, love or control, right? So this has been, it is the journey of you know, I sometimes feel like every five years, there's like a different theme of your life where you're like trying to learn this one thing over and over again. And this is yep. it for me now. Mm. You're in and it. Yeah, I'm in it. And it's such, of course, of course, it's the next thing because I spent the last however long, you know, figuring out how to become untamed myself, how to be free from cages, how to be free from expectations, how to be free from other people's control. And then, on the other hand, I'm controlling and caging. <laughs> it's very like meta. <laughs> right? So yes. Jesus, talk about there's no such thing as one-way liberation. Like, that's great, but I'm liberated. Now I need to freaking stop caging everyone else in my life. <laughs> so damn it to hell, that's what I'm working on. When you take that concept and you apply it to yourself for self-love and not trying to control yourself in terms of perfectionism or whatever you might be doing. For me, body image has been a lifelong struggle type thing, and I, I know for you too, but I think it was Bruce Lee who said self-awareness leads to self-actualization. So my question for you, the other day you talked about how much you've freed yourself in so many aspects of your life. And the one area, and you were so honest, and it was so good, everybody. I just want everybody to watch it. It was, a it was a morning meeting. You talked about the area of your relationship with your body still being one that's, you know, yeah. it's a work in progress. And you even were very honest and said, look, at, I, I, listen, I don't, have the, I don't have the answers on this one. Um, no, no, af no. After you shared that, did anything shift in you or have you noticed any, mm -hmm. any small shifts after, you know, kind mm -hmm. of exposing that and letting it breathe? Okay. Tell us more. Tell us more. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that you brought this up right after that other question because I feel like they're connected for me. So it, it, when I discovered that love is the opposite of control, like in order to if you really love something, you you don't try to control it because you trust it, right? Mm -hmm. That's when I realized like, oh, I don't, I'm not even close to loving my body. And I don't mean that in any way by what it looks like, okay? Like what I'm talking about is so much deeper than that. Like I could give two shits about what it looks like right now. Like I am probably, I don't know how many pounds, I have no idea, but I'm I'll definitely on the thin side, okay? Mm-hmm. And that is because it's so hilarious to me because, you know, people are always like, oh, you, well, I'm sure you don't have any body problems because you're thin. And I want to be like, why do you think I'm so freaking thin? <laughs> because I have so many body problems, right? It's like, yeah. I know that I don't trust, that I don't love my body because I don't trust my body because I spend all day, every day trying to control, control. my body. 
Okay. Trying to control my food, trying to control my um, workouts. It gets, it gets way worse when things are out of control. So right before the pandemic happened, I was going on a worldwide tour. And before those times for me, I get weird. Okay. And it's not something that I can like see coming. It's like all of a sudden I'm in it and Abby's like, babe, are you okay? It's like, I just start trying to control my body even more than usual. So I was in the middle of that. And I think it's because I'm about to be exposed to the whole world. It feels like a little bit unsafe. It feels vulnerable. And I'm just trying to like get back whatever control I have. And then, and then the pandemic came and like the, the people who have food and body issues, those food and body issues are like freaking just right in front of us during mm-hmm. a time like this. We're stuck mm-hmm. in the house. We're stuck with ourselves. We're like all the scarcity and hoarding and like, it's just a lot. And so I just, a bunch of people asked me about it. I said something about it in the middle of the week. And then a bunch of people asked me about it. And somebody said, you must not feel like this because you're thin. And so it was just time to just be like, oh, no, no, sister. Like, (laughs) it's, I told Abby recently that I would bet on an average day that 50% of my thoughts are about food and my body. That's, that is what struck me the most in listening to you because same, same here. And I just am heartbroken at all of that energy and mind space that can be applied to other things. And that's the price of it. Okay. There's a price to being a girl in this world. There's a price to being born into a culture that sends you the message from the time you are born that your duty and worthiness is based on how small you are, right? And the price to pay is a 44-year-old woman who spends 50% of her day. The opportunity cost of that, like it makes me so furious because I am such a smart and powerful woman. And when I think about the art and the activism and the self-love and the family love that I could be experiencing if I had those 50% of my thoughts back, that's the cost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So so anyway, your question was what has shifted. I'll tell you this thing that is not like a huge shift, but it's a, a teeny one, which is that after I shared that again, I think I had gotten to the point where, you know, I am not outwardly, I'm not, I'm not bulimic, I'm not, I'm just... Uh, I would say I don't have any eating disorder anymore. I just have disordered thinking about eating. I really believe that I do have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I had gotten to the point where I was just like, fine, fine. There's nothing. I, I have been dealing with this since I was 10. Like, this is just going to be who I am. And I can get a lot of other shit done. And 50% of my brain is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's worked out so far, right? It's right, 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 right. serving you okay. <laughs> right. So I was like in this, you know, radical surrender to mm-hmm. this part of myself. Mm-hmm. And after I shared that, I just, it wasn't anything in particular anyone said, because I don't really like, when I share something really vulnerable, I don't like people to send me hopeful messages. Like, I don't want to hear your advice. I don't want to hear, I, I just, the only thing that really comforts me is like, thank you for sharing that. It meant something to me or the me too's. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. hear any hopeful bullshit after that. But Something about the connection and vulnerability that people responded to me with made me feel like just a little sliver of 
desire to maybe do a little more work and see if there's any freedom that I, that could be had. Oh, amazing. You know, and, and, yeah. And I'm not so basically this is your next book, right? I mean, let's no, see. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. It would be like one sentence. It would be like, I don't get it. Love. <laughs> <laughs> Give us some time. Let it breathe. Talk about wound, right? It would just be bleeding. Like blood. Please buy these pages of blood. Yes. I don't get it. Oh my gosh. But that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Even a, a tiny trajectory shift is going to send you in a different direction longer term, right? Yeah. But listen, I also am so suspicious of hope. Like I <laughs> Because it, you, because you've been living, is it because of the amount of time you've dealt with this? Is that why? Because hope is dangerous. Like yeah. hope is a beautiful thing, and it's also scary as shit. Because it's like, it's if, I feel, if I let myself feel hope, then I'm gonna have to try. And if I try, then it's gonna be hard. And what if I fail? It's all of that what next stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So we'll mm-hmm. see. I make no promises, but I see a sliver of hope. Awesome. Thank you for for sharing that. I mean, it's you you have an amazing delicate way of articulating while you're in it, but also not it's not like you're learning something on Tuesday and teaching it Wednesday. You're you're not oh. claiming to like I got it figured out. I went on IGTV and I figured it out. Oh, um, no. but it's and I think that's a, a message in itself too. Um oh, I I know we need to wrap up here, but I Glennon, this has been a career highlight for me. I can't tell you. I'm just like, eyes are watering over here. Um, Thank you. God, I've loved this. I've loved this. It's been an hour. I feel like it's been 15 minutes. I know. I have 97 more questions, and I was like, maybe I should do fire round. And I'm like, no, Amy, that's too fast energy. You need to slow down. And so I'm like, okay, let's just let it be what it's going to be. Maybe we could do it again sometime. Um, I would love um, to, Amy. You were just so you know, this is this interview was absolute perfection for me. You were oh. you did a fantastic job, and I loved every minute of it. Thank you. Well, I'm I'm just so excited for everyone to be, you know, out there enjoying your work right now. It's such important work and I see it. I mean, I post about this and people go batshit crazy. Like, oh my gosh, you're talking to her. I love the book. And it's, I mean, you're hearing it. It's so well received. And I just, I can't wait to continue to follow your journey. I'll be at Monday morning meeting time every morning. So (laughs) I'll see you there. And thank you. Thank you, sister. Stay safe. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the show. Hit me up on social media to let me know what you think. I'm at Amy Jo Martin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I want to hear your why not now moments so I can share them on the show. Just send me a note to why not now at amyjomartin.com. For show notes and other offers, you can visit amyjomartin.com forward slash why not now. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for my email newsletter for exclusive content and announcements. A big thanks to Rock Salt Music for all of the tunes by the talented John Coggins. And of course, a hat tip to Richard Gruer for editing and producing the show. I'll see you next time. And until then, why not now? Thank you.